Let's say a prayer for those children as they depart and for us as we open God's word together. Father, we love the children that you have sent to this community and to our families, and we thank you for them as precious gifts from heaven. Um, your word says, children are a reward from the Lord, blessed is the one whose quiver is full of them. Um, so Lord, we thank you and we do bless you for them. We ask that they would encounter you this morning in their children's church. And Lord, we ask that you, we would encounter you too in your word today. Would our hearts be open before you to receive you? And would you um, give us what we need, Lord, in our faith and in our discipleship today? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, it's a good day, because today we get to explore what is easily the most popular and well-known verse in the Bible. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I'm sure you can say that by heart too. Uh, it's maybe the most beloved sentence in the history of the world, and rightly so. Sportsmen have it tattooed on their arms. Tim Tebow used to write it on his face before major games. And fans in the stands hold it up on these big banners. John 3.16. It's pretty hard to get it wrong. Although one politician did manage to. I can't remember who it was, but one politician <coughs> told the press that he was a Christian. And a reporter asked him what was his favorite Bible verse. And he told the reporter that it was John 16.3. <laughs> And that's pretty funny because John 16.3 says, they will do these things for they have not known the Father or me. <laughs> uh, today we're going to look at the actual verse uh, and at the context in which Jesus said it. So please turn in your Bibles to John 3 and 16. John chapter 3. Jesus spoke this profound and world-changing sentence to a man, to one man, a specific man called Nicodemus, and he was a high-ranking Pharisee. And along with all this beautiful teaching, Jesus had some strong notes of challenge and rebuke for this man, Nicodemus. So as we meet him, we learn some things about him, and the reason Jesus had to challenge him were three. First, that Nicodemus believed in Jesus, kind of, but he really didn't want to start his life over. The second was that he believed, but he wouldn't fully receive his teacher. And the third was that he believed, but he wouldn't say so in public. He didn't want to start his life over. He wouldn't fully receive his teacher, and he wouldn't say he believed in public. And these were problems that Jesus felt the need to address. So we're going to look at what he said, starting in uh, chapter 3, verse 1. So first, Nicodemus believed, but he didn't want to start his life over. First one says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Jesus here is still in Jerusalem for the Passover, and he got this surprise visit from a high-ranking Pharisee. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Why? Because he wanted to keep his visit a secret. It was already dangerous among the Jewish ruling class to be seen near Jesus. Nicodemus came and he opened with a gambit that suggested some faith. He called Jesus rabbi, which is a term of respect. And he said, we know that you are from God. He located the source of his belief in the signs that Jesus had been doing in the temple. We saw one of them last week when Jesus cleansed the temple. 
So far, so good. This is good thinking and sound logic. It seems to come from a mind that is open to the facts of the case, a mind that's willing to decide on the strength of the evidence. So Jesus' answer to Nicodemus in verse 3 seems a little blunt, because he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, Nicodemus, you think you get it, but you haven't even started. You still need to be born. You need to start over from scratch. Now, the Jewish mind was familiar with this idea of being born into the family of God because they were all born into the family tree of Abraham, and that made them God's chosen people by birth. And Nicodemus had fully lived into that identity. He had learned his Hebrew Bible by heart. He was an expert, full of years and wisdom, and people would come to him with all their difficult questions. But here Jesus says to him, you've got to be born again, or you're not even getting in to God's kingdom. And that would certainly have come to him as a big shock. Now, the Greek word for again that Jesus uses can also be translated from above. You might see that in your ESV note there. Unless one is born from above. It could be translated born from the source, born from the first. Those might be ways to translate it. Born again is valid. But we must keep in our minds that idea of going back to the start, back to the source. It means that the second birth is not just a simple do-over of the first birth. It's different. It's from above. Uh, Nicodemus totally misunderstood this this point in verse 4. And he asked pretty stupidly, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? And uh, we should be glad that he was so stupid because we're stupid too. Um, And thanks to Nicodemus, we now get Jesus' clarification on the point. Verse 5, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So our mothers gave us birth and life in this physical world of the flesh. But this life we know is mortal and therefore temporary. God wants a much greater thing for us. Immortality, everlasting life. A life that comes through the Spirit of God so that we are born of God as children of God. The second birth is no more our decision than the first birth was because Jesus says the wind blows where it wishes. And until we are born again, we really know nothing about God or his kingdom, however well-read and learned we might be. Because Jesus said in verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So thanks to Nicodemus, we have a fairly good understanding of what Jesus meant by born again. And it brings me to the obvious question, have you been born again in the way that Jesus means it here? Do you know that once you were dead and blind and ignorant of God until you were born into wakefulness and faith and awareness of God's kingdom all around you? When I was working for an engineering firm in central London, I did a job with an African colleague. And while we were working together, he turned to me and asked me, are you a Christian? And I said, yes. And he said, 
born again? And I said, is there any other kind of Christian? And he laughed pretty hard because, no, there isn't any other kind of Christian, is there? <clears throat> Not based on what Jesus says here. <clears throat> so if you think today that maybe you have not been born again, then you need to be, and you can be. Why not today? Our life with God comes with the blessing or the curse of a fresh start, a rebirth and a total do-over. For some people, that news of rebirth is really good, wonderful, healing news. Because my old life was a disaster. It was, I was a horrible, miserable person, and a horrible, miserable things kept happening to me. And I will so gladly toss that old life in the garbage dump and start over fresh and clean and new and innocent. And that is exactly what faith in Jesus does for us. The waters of holy baptism wash us clean, and the Holy Spirit of God births us as a new creation. Praise the Lord. But for others of us, starting over sounds like more of a curse than a blessing. And I think Nicodemus would have been one of these. Because my life is something I've taken years to craft. I've built a name, a reputation. I'm a person of standing. I have a lot to lose by being born again and starting from scratch. A lot that would be hard to lose. And yes, friend, you must count that cost because you will lose it. That's exactly what Jesus told Nicodemus. You will lose it. If you follow me, you will be saved. You will see the kingdom of God. You will have eternal life. But you won't be a ruler of the Pharisees anymore. You won't be respected anymore. You won't be in the inner circle anymore. You will lose the glory that one Pharisee kept giving to another. People won't bow to you in the street or ask you questions anymore. He would lose all of that. And similarly, anyone who wants to serve the kingdom of God and share in eternal life must utterly forsake the glory of men and lose all of that. So first, Nicodemus believed, but he didn't want to start his life over. Now second, he believed, but he wouldn't fully receive his teacher. So after such a clear and beautiful explanation of the new birth in verse 8, Nicodemus' response in verse 9 was, how can these things be? <laughs> uh, and this is not only dense, it's rude. This is offensive incredulity. In verse 2, Nicodemus came in with a humble posture, and he said, Rabbi. But then as soon as his rabbi spoke, his response was, how can this be? And no disciple would ever dream of saying that to his rabbi. The appropriate response is always, yes, rabbi. And if you don't understand something, you go off and ponder it in your heart for a while, but you never doubt that your rabbi is right. This is frankly so rude. And Jesus rebukes him in verse 10. Are you a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. I have told you earthly things and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So here Nicodemus proves that he can't see the kingdom of God at all, that for all of his learning, he's just blind to it. And he shows his own reluctance to humble himself and be born again as Jesus commanded. So he's not receiving the words of life that Jesus just offered him. So what was Nicodemus' relationship to the other Pharisees at this point? Was he one of them or not? Was he a secret believer or a secret spy? 
coming to Jesus by night. When he came, he said, we know that you are from God. We, plural, we know. Who did he mean by we? Was he trying to speak up for all the Pharisees or just a small faction of them that was more open to accepting Jesus? Was he coming to Jesus to try to say, I'm different from all those other hard-hearted numbskulls? Jesus rebukes him and says, Nicodemus, you're not different. Verse 11, you do not receive our testimony. That you is plural too. It means you and all those other Pharisees. You're just like them. You're exactly like them. You're completely one of them. You're doing just exactly what they do and not receiving the testimony of the one who by his miraculous signs proves, you said this, that he's from God and is witnessing to what he knows. Your rabbi just opened his mouth to speak and all you can do is disagree with him and disbelieve him. This is never going to work. You'll never learn the truth and be saved if you won't receive your teacher. Doesn't this rebuke reflect poorly on all of us, friends? Don't we all have the same problem as Nicodemus in not fully receiving our Lord Jesus? We might like him overall. We might accept his love for us and his death on our behalf. There are lots of things he says that we like the sound of, but it's hard to accept all of them, isn't it? There are things Jesus opens his mouth to say, and and we just gloss over that part. Never mind about that part. We can just ignore that. Get back to following him in the parts we like, in the parts we find easy. That will be enough, won't it? No, it won't be enough. Is that what it means to be a disciple? Or is it more what it means to be a Pharisee? Jesus said, when you pray, Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Do you pray? Jesus said, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Do you fast? Jesus said, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Do you give to the needy? Do you turn the other cheek? Do you walk two miles when someone asks for one? Would you rather pluck out your eye than look lustfully at a woman? Are you loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you? Do you take your offenses straight to your offender without gossiping about them? Do you follow Jesus in sexual purity and in his teaching about divorce? And are you going to make disciples of all nations? Because all of that is what our rabbi, the one we call Lord, has commanded. Do you see that we're so much more like Nicodemus than we might care to admit? We'd much rather say, How can these things be than, yes, Lord? But a disciple must receive his teacher in every word. Not just the words we like, not just the words we find comforting, not just the words that seem plausible to us in the milieu of our present culture. Every word. He said it, I believe it. He commanded it, I do it. So what has Jesus said to you that you are not obeying? Let it be nothing, friends, nothing. He knows what he's talking about. He alone has been to heaven. Let his words be received. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, please don't hear this as me shaming anyone. I don't say this to shame anyone. Jesus does set a high standard. It's much too high for me. Just on the lists of, list of commands that I just read, I myself have failed at several points this very week. And when we fall short, we go to our Father for mercy, 
and he loves us and he forgives us and he picks us back up again and helps us on with the next lesson. And no one is expected to get it all right right away. So I really don't want to shame any of you who know that you're still a work in progress. So am I. Don't give up. But I do want to shake you out of complacency if you think that you're done. If you think you've graduated from the school of holiness, because that's what Nicodemus thought, and he was sorely mistaken. So Nicodemus's first problem was that he didn't want to start his life over. Second, he wouldn't fully receive his teacher. But now third, he would not show his faith in public. Instead, he came secretly by night, but that will not do either. Because let's think about God's great salvation plan and how public it had to be. Jesus went on in verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And in that story about Moses, as Peter reminded us just now in the children's sermon, the people were out camping in the wilderness, and a bunch of poisonous snakes infested their camp. And the snakes were biting people, and thousands of people were dying. Moses prayed to God about it, and God told him to make a bronze serpent and to put it up on a stick and hold it up in the sight of the people. And anyone who looked at the bronze serpent and gazed upon it would not die from the snake bites. So back in England, we have a healthcare system. It's not particularly great. <clears throat> But when we chose the symbol for medicine in England, medicine and healing in our system, we selected this image of the snake on the stick from this story. It comes from Moses, and it trusts that the God of heaven uh, will heal his people when they look to him. Public medicine borrowed the symbol of public healing from the Old Testament. Here in the U.S., you kind of had that same idea, and you somehow totally messed it up because you put two snakes on the stick, and you put a pair of wings on the top, and it's no longer the symbol of Moses. It's the symbol of Hermes now. You've ruined it. Good Greek messenger, you bunch of pagans. He's the god of thieves and cunning. He's got nothing to do with healing at all. Someone really needs to fix that. The symbol is Moses. The single snake on a staff is a dramatic image of God's healing. It was very public. It needed to be on full public display in the sight of all the people to work. And so it was with the cross of Jesus Christ. When Jesus said that the Son of Man was going to be lifted up, he meant it literally hoisted up on a stick of wood. He was up on full public display for our sin to be gazed at and gaped at by all and sundry. Why? Why? Because of his love. Because of God's overwhelming and unquenchable love to stop the world from perishing, he would go as far as to take the pain and the punishment on himself and take the scorn and the public derision on himself to be crucified naked and bleed into the streets. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the first time in the Gospel of John that he uses the Greek word agape, love. It is a big word. 
It's a major theme of John's gospel. We're going to hear it so many, many more times before the end of this gospel. But this is the first time, the first strike of that beautiful chord. It's like the part when you're listening to a symphony where your favorite theme comes in for the first time and your soul sinks into it and relaxes and says, ah, yes, home. God sent his son into the world because he loved the world. He loved all the world despite everything, despite knowing everything that what we're like. He loved us. He sent his son Jesus down to save us at great personal cost, at the cost of his own life, at the cost of his own dignity. Jesus was hung up like a snake for your soul. And it was all very, very public, right? And it needs to be public. It needs to be public because the problem is public. Just like the snake bites, everyone is getting them. And everyone is getting bitten by Satan today. Everyone is falling prey to his temptations to sin. They're bitten. They're dying. The problem is a public problem. No one is exempt. And the cross needs to be public because the solution is public. It works for everybody in all the world. There is nothing that can cure the bite of Satan. And if you're bit, you'll surely die. And brother, you are bit. Nothing can cure it in all the world except the death of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And that is such a strong cure that it can cure anyone of anything and everyone of everything. Jesus said, verse 16, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Friend, are you a part of whoever? Are you included in whoever? Does whoever include you? Yes, it does. Whoever is a wonderfully, beautifully, unexclusive word, isn't it? I'm throwing a party tonight and whoever can come. Jesus goes on in verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The, pub, the problem is a public problem, and the solution is a public solution. But also here, the sharing of this solution is a public imperative in response to a public crisis, isn't it? If I had here in my pocket today a pill that could cure cancer, right here in my pocket, and I knew that hundreds of thousands of people around the world today were going to die of cancer, and the same tomorrow, and the same the next day, could I in good conscience keep that pill in my pocket and not tell a soul that I had it, not tell them that I had the solution to the problem in my hand? No, I could not. To do so would be morally reprehensible. It would be an act of the greatest hatred toward my fellow man. And so it is with the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus says the ones who do not have it have nothing left to do but die. And we have it. And we could give it to them. What then do we make of someone who prefers to keep his faith private? Is that a valid choice? Jesus has one more rebuke for Nicodemus in verse 19. And this is the judgment the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. If 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Nicodemus, why are you here by night? Why are you cloaking yourself in the darkness? A private faith is no faith at all. If you're doing what is right, you'll come out into the open, unafraid to be clearly seen. And maybe you today still prefer the darkness, avoiding the scrutiny of God's word. Could that be why you resist praying and reading your Bible? Or why you're sluggish about coming to Sunday worship? You pour yourself instead into works of charity and service to try to earn the favor of God and his people and to redirect God's scrutiny of your soul. Maybe because there's a dark set of deeds in there that you know about and prefer to keep hidden so that you can keep doing them. But much more likely, you just, you just don't want to know what the actual judge would say about you. You much prefer to be your own judge There in the darkness, you can convince yourself that everything with you is just fine. You're all good. Who needs a second opinion? Easy to do in the cave of beautiful darkness. But those of us who have stepped out into the light have done so not because we're any better, not because our consciences are clean, but because we know they're filthy and we want them to be washed Out in the light is where the laundry happens, and guilty and forgiven is so much better than clueless and condemned. Eternal life comes not through any choice of ours or any effort. It is simply the free gift of God's love at the cross of Jesus Christ. Look on it, believe in it, and be saved. And after you've done that, the next thing that we do is baptize you. And we baptize you in public because your ongoing life with Jesus happens in public, in the church and in the world. Jesus tells Nicodemus, a private faith, a faith in the darkness is no faith at all. Now, we must say that the story here ends happily for Nicodemus. Not in this passage, but later on in John's gospel, he ends up helping to inter Jesus' dead body in the tomb. He finally takes a very public stand of solidarity and belief. So Nicodemus listened to what Jesus told him here. He took these rebukes seriously. He repented and he believed. And the way is wide open for any of us to do the same. The promise of eternal life still stands. Will you not receive it today? If you want to, then I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer right now. And I ask the whole congregation to bow your heads and close your eyes to make this easier for people who want to say it. Please do that now. And this is all you need to pray to receive eternal life. In your heart, you simply say, Jesus, I believe that you came from God. And I believe that you died to save me. I want to follow you with all my heart. Please forgive me for anything in my past that wasn't pleasing to you, especially these things that I'm thinking of now that I know were wrong. 
please give me that new birth you were talking about. A new life in your Holy Spirit. Amen.